our certain salvation. Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 20. This is a part two. Last Sunday, we shared with you part one. Trust that you could see that on uh, the live stream recording on Facebook. Uh, Facebook CBC Body has that message from last week and may be helpful to you to view that message if you have not done so already. But today we're on part two of our certain salvation from Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. Last time in the passage, we saw the following. We saw that we who are saved have eternal security, that once we are saved, we are always saved. We also saw last time that we can have that security, but lack an assurance that we have it. The word of God and the promises of God are the remedy to lacking assurance for our salvation when we are saved. Also, last time in the passage, we saw that there are three reasons why every true Christian can know that he or she is guaranteed ultimate and complete salvation. And these three reasons all have to do with God. The first reason is God's promise. We looked at that last week in verses 13 to 15. Today, the second thing is God's oath. We'll look at that today in verses 16 to 18. And three, the third reason we know if we're saved, we're ultimately and completely going to be saved. The third reason is God's son. We're going to take that reason up in these moments in this sermon. They are based on verses 19 and 20. So going back to last time again, we only looked at that time at reason one for knowing that our salvation will be completed. And that reason is God's promise. And in connection with this, last time we saw from verse 15 that God's promise was obtained by Abraham by Abraham's patient waiting on God. Verse 15, chapter 6. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. The pronoun he, when looking back in the context of verse 13, is a reference to Abraham. So Abraham obtained the promise of the covenant God made with him by patiently waiting on God. That is a timeless principle, that we who are saved will also obtain the purpose that is wrapped up in our salvation, which is a certain salvation, as we live patiently waiting the completion of our Salvation. Verse 15 again, and thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Therefore, here and now, we are each called to be patient about our salvation, to understand that all the blessings of our salvation are not microwave blessings, but they are crockpot blessings. There are blessings that will come to pass because of God's mercy and faithfulness, but they do not come to pass instantly. It's a process, and we need to wait patiently for that process to be fulfilled. And in the waiting patiently for our salvation promises to be fulfilled, we ought to be committed to spiritually growing as we wait the culmination of our salvation. We are not just marking time, wasting time, being distracted by all the world's offerings when we have a certain salvation. We are waiting for that certain salvation to be fulfilled and completed by God in us. But in the meanwhile, we are committed, determined 
to spiritually grow in the meanwhile. And now we're beginning to be ready to look at some new material from verses 6, chapter 6, rather, verses 13 to 20, new material for this sermon. And as I've mentioned, the example of Abraham was brought forward in verse 13. I'll read it. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And it is pointed out that Abraham obtained the promised son, Isaac, by applying himself in faith, by patiently applying himself in faith. How did he do that? Well, at least three ways. Number one, by telling his wife, Sarah, that she was going to have a baby when she was well past her childbearing years. In other words, Abraham flat out believed God. God told them they were going to have a baby in their old age, and Abraham believed God. Second, Abraham applied himself in faith by marching probably a 16-year-old Isaac to an offering altar with the full intention of killing him as a sacrifice in obedience to God's amazingly difficult command. And as Abraham applied himself in faith to march teenage son, son of promise Isaac to an offering altar with a knife, Abraham obeyed God to the max. Of course, God spared Isaac's life at the last moment. The third way that Abraham applied himself in faith was that the rest of his life, he was persevering in believing God and following God. In other words, although the road of Abraham's life, Abraham's life went twists and turns, ups and downs, on that road until he died, he didn't give up following God. He didn't give up believing God. In other words, even though Abraham himself didn't live to see all of the promises that were made to him materialize, he believed God and followed God until he died. That was at least three ways that Abraham applied himself in faith. And of course, we too are to apply ourselves in faith. More specifically, if you're a Christian, you are to apply yourself in faith. The way you spend time, the way you spend money, the way you look at life, the way you involve yourself in this church, you ought to be applying yourself in faith. How does that work? What does applying oneself in faith look like? I love what Warren Wearsby writes on this, and I'll quote, you will obtain and enjoy what God has promised if you diligently apply yourself to the development of your spiritual life. We Christians today have more of God's promises than Abraham did. What is keeping us from making spiritual progress? We do not apply ourselves by faith. Now listen, this is the quote, Wearsby. The farmer does not reap a harvest by sitting on the porch looking at the seed. He must be busy and plow and plant, weed and cultivate, and perhaps water the soil. 
The believer who neglects church fellowship, ignores the Bible, and forgets to pray is not going to reap much of a harvest. End of quote. And so I asked the man in the pulpit, and I asked you who are viewing the same question, how well are you applying yourself in faith? If there was a scale of zero, not at all, and 10 perfectly, what score would you give to yourself when grading yourself on how well you are applying yourself in faith? A second question. Are you doing your very best to spiritually grow? Are you doing your level best to go on to spiritual maturity? Are you wanting and working toward growing up into Christ rather than merely settling for growing old in Christ? And so, from the first reason the true Christian can know that he or she will ultimately and completely be saved, and that is God's promise. Verses 13 to 15. We go on to the second reason we can know we'll be completely saved, and it's God's oath. God's oath. I see that in verses 16 to 18 of Hebrews 6. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. God's oath is a reason that you can know for certain that you will not lose your salvation and that God will completely fulfill his salvation promises to you and his son. God's oath. Still considering Abraham of old, God only not only gave Abraham a promise of a son, but God also confirmed that promise with an oath. And God has done the same for us. Going back to verse 17, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. God's promise to you, if you are saved, is my purpose to save you won't change. God says, I promise you that the reason I saved you will not change. And then if we look at verse 18, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things that are mentioned in verse 18 are things we've already been talking about in these sermons, namely, the unchangeable thing of God's promise, number one, and second, the unchangeable thing of God's oath. God's oath 
is unchangeable. God's promise is unchangeable. And so God's promise, again, to say it again, the reason God saved you, he promises you this, that the reason he saved you, that he says, my purpose to save you won't change. And by the way, God's purpose to save anyone is to bring glory to himself. So God's promise, if you are saved, is to you that my promise to save you won't change. But then God confirms that promise with an oath. And the oath essentially says to you, if you are saved, God says, it is impossible for me to lie. One day, your hope will become reality. And so God's promise to you, if you're saved, my purpose to save you won't change. God's oath to confirm that promise is essentially God saying, it is impossible for me to lie. One day, your hope will become reality. You know, God's promise and God's oath are supposed to be tremendous encouragement to us who are saved. Because let's face it, most all of us at some point have been burned to some degree by some other person breaking a promise to us. You see, human promises are often broken. Sometimes even human oaths and vows are even broken. But God is not like that. God's promises are unbreakable by God and unbreakable by anyone else, including us. And God's oath is certain. God's oath is true to himself, true to who he is as a person, true to who he is in his plan. God's oath is certain. This ought to be fantastic encouragement to the born-again son or daughter of God. When we think of humans that have broken promises to us, humans that have broken covenants to us, pledges to us, oaths to us, vows to us, set that all aside. God has made you a promise, and he will never break it. And God has sworn an oath by himself that he will not break his promise. That's to be a tremendous encouragement to the redeemed. And so, Christian, viewing today, please know that your troubles, your turmoil, your trespasses, all can never teeter or topple over or terminate God's salvation of you. Because God's salvation of you is forever tied to his promise and to his oath and to his son. As the hymn writer put it, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, yes, the encouragement of the surety of God's salvation of those who will run to Jesus Christ in faith 
Oh, the encouragement of God's promise and the encouragement of God's oath. And to read it again, verse 18, in order that by two unchangeable things, again, to interject God's promise and his oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. Oh, yes, encouragement. Again, God's promise essentially is to you if you're saved. My promise to save you won't change. And that promise is to bring glory to my name through you. And then God's oath to confirm that wonderful promise. Essentially, God says to you who are redeemed, it is impossible for me to lie. Your hope will become reality. Be encouraged. Your troubles, your turmoil, your trespasses, all can never teeter or topple over or terminate God's salvation of you because God's salvation of you is forever tied to his promise, to his oath, and to his son. And so, by way of review, we're talking about three things in this passage that guarantee the true born-again Christian of ultimate and complete salvation. And the first reason is God's promise. We see that in verses 13 to 15. The second is God's oath. We've just seen that in verses 16 through 18. And the third reason you have guaranteed, secure, to be completed salvation in Jesus Christ is God's Son. Verses 19 and 20. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so God's Son is a wonderful reason for you and I who are saved to be confident that we will have a secured and completed salvation ultimately, God's Son. You know, if there was a dictionary that was a pictorial dictionary, and a dictionary had a picture beside every word it defined, in that kind of a dictionary, beside the word hope, would be a picture of the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus is the epitome of hope. The Lord Jesus is the personification of hope, perfect hope, complete hope, undefeatable hope. Jesus Christ is hope. Christ is the only hope for lost persons. And Christ is the only hope for saved persons. Christ is the only hope in death. And Jesus Christ is the only hope in life. And Christ is the only hope in our joy. And Jesus Christ is the only hope in our suffering. And Jesus Christ is the only hope, period. We live on a beautiful island surrounded by the beautiful sea. And so we are familiar with anchors. The Lord Jesus is compared to an anchor in verse 19. And I need to point out that boat anchors anchor downward to the bottom of the sea. But Jesus Christ as anchor anchors upward to heaven. Put another way, boat anchors anchor to make boats stand still. 
Christ as anchor anchors believers to make us move forward in Christ-likeness toward our true home, which is in heaven. Verse 19 again. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So Jesus Christ, to say it again, is an anchor for your soul if you are saved, and he is an anchor who pulls you to being more like him. He is an anchor that pulls you to your eventual eternal home of glory, heaven. Jesus Christ is the anchor of your soul if you're a Christian. He's pulling you toward being like him, and he's pulling you toward living with him in heaven. Like any anchor which is worthwhile, as the anchor of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to verse 19, is three things. He is sure, he is steadfast, and he is savior. To expand upon that slightly, as the anchor of your soul, your Lord Jesus Christ is sure, that is, he cannot break. He is steadfast, that is, he cannot slip. And he is savior, he cannot be denied heaven. In fact, Christ is our only possible access into heaven. And so when verse 19 indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ has entered within the veil, it is saying that our Savior has already gone into heaven ahead of us. He's there waiting for us. He is there as our forerunner, and he is there as our perfect and our forever high priest. Jesus, our spiritual anchor, for the soul is sure, steadfast, and savior. When darkness hides and veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now please look again at verse 20. Verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When you consider the Old Testament times and Israel's high priests during those times, you must understand that those high priests were not forerunners in that no one, no Jew, could physically follow the Old Testament high priests into the place called the Holy of Holies. It was not allowed. But the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, in contrast, has gone ahead of us into heaven for the expressed reason so that we can and will follow him there. He's our forerunner. He's our high priest already 
doing priestly ministry for us before we ever get to heaven. And this, of course, is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ assured his first followers before the cross when he said in John 14, 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. At the ascension after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has gone to what is your home, if you're a believer, heaven. And he's been preparing that place, that eternal home for you as a believer in heaven ever since the ascension. Think of what Jesus did in six literal days to create the world and the universe. Think of what he's been preparing for you who trust him as Savior to have as your eternal mansion and abode in heaven. He's our forerunner. He's gone ahead of us. He's gone ahead of us to be our perfect high priest in heaven. What a Savior and what a salvation we have. And so every born-again, saved, regenerated, converted believer in Jesus Christ is going to one day fully realize 100% complete salvation. No exceptions. There may be lost rewards at the beam of judgment seat of Christ for some of us as believers, but none of us will have an incomplete salvation. It'll be a complete glorification when we see Christ because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his promise, because of his oath, because of his son. Now, this is important. This guarantee of an ultimate and a complete salvation for everyone who is truly saved has been given to us in this passage for a reason. And the reason God has given us these guarantees, the three of them, God's promise, God's oath, and God's son, is this. God means for us to reject spiritual sluggishness. Jesus Christ wants us to reject being lazy Christians unwilling to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ wants us to refuse to set the bars too low in our spiritual advancement and maturing. That's why he's, on the one hand, guaranteed we'll have a complete salvation. On the other hand, because you will, then you work hard, trust hard, obey hard, serve hard in the meanwhile, so that you will know your full, joyous, participation in the work of Jesus Christ on earth until he gathers you out by rapture or by physical death. And so these guarantees of a completed salvation for all true Christians, these guarantees are to motivate us to fully applying ourselves in faith to not being one foot in this world and one foot in the word of God not to be trusting God for the biggies in life and carrying our own load and working like it all depends on us in the little things of life. No. We are to apply ourselves in faith. Abraham did, and he had less promises to wait patiently for fulfillment than we do. We need to apply ourselves in faith. 
We need to, in the metaphor of the farmer of Wearsby's quote, we need to get off the porch. We need to get busy. We need to plow. We need to plant. We need to weed. We need to water. We need to harvest the crop that God will give, the spiritual crop that God will give. We must not neglect Christian fellowship, even that it takes such a different shape in the lockdown and in the pandemic. We must not ignore our Bibles. We must dig into our Bibles personally and with our families that still live under our roofs. We must not forget to pray. We must begin the day with prayer and pray all through the day and conclude the day in prayer. We must spiritually grow and we must spiritually mature. What a wonderful passage we've looked at today. Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We thank the Lord for the certainty and the security of our salvation in Jesus Christ based upon God's promise, based upon God's oath, and based upon God's Son. And may I say before closing this message in prayer that if you do not know this salvation and this Savior, today is the day of salvation for you. Do not procrastinate. Do not put it off. You may not have tomorrow. Recognize that before God you are a sinner, having fallen short of God's character. Recognize that your sin, according to Scripture, has earned you the wage of separation from God. Understand and believe that in love, God has come to you in Christ, that he has proven his love for you by sending his best, his only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross to die the death that you should have died, to give you the life that you never could have had without Christ. Understand that you need to come to the end of yourself your efforts, your own beliefs not rooted in Scripture. And you need to transfer your full and complete trust onto the finished work of Christ. Christ and no one else. Christ alone. And when you believe that God has shown his love toward you in sending Christ to die in your place, you can understand that this wonderful salvation we've been preaching about for the last two Sundays is a salvation that is a gift. It is not a wage. 
No one can earn this wonderful gift of salvation. Only persons can receive it by faith in Christ. It is a grace of God, an unmerited favor from God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Would you transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone from where you view us today? Would you say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? Would you say, I believe that Jesus died in my place? Would you say to God that I believe that you raised your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead? And would you put all of your confidence for time and eternity onto Jesus Christ and him alone? then you would have this gift that I've been preaching about for the last two Sundays. A gift that says when God gives such a gift, he keeps such a gift safe in the person within who he gives it to, and he will bring it to completion. Let me help you. Trust Christ for salvation. Father, I know I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus died in my place to pay for my sins. I believe that he was raised from the dead and I trust him and only him to make me a Christian, to make me forgiven, to make me a part of God's family, to make me right with God. Help me to live a thank you kind of life to you, Father, after you have saved me. Help me to be a humble person. Help me to be a thankful person and help me to be a growing person a maturing person in the things spiritual. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ for salvation, I would love to hear from you. Uh, my phone number will be posted, and I'd love to hear you on the phone tell me you've trusted Jesus to be your Savior. And I'd love to get you started in growing in grace in the knowledge of your Savior, even by way of the phone during a lockdown. For the believers, thank you so much for your attention again today to God's word. I want to remind you that the guaranteed security and fulfillment of our salvation is to have us not settle for being sluggish and not settle for being spiritually stunted in our growth and to not settle for spiritual immaturity. I know and expect better for, from you because of God in you, and I know you can expect better of me because of God in me. God bless you, and thank you for your attention to God's word.